Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we are discussing esthesioneuroblastoma, and we are joined by fellowship-trained rhinologist Dr. Garrett Choby and fellowship-trained skull-based neurosurgeon Dr. Jamie Van Gumpel. Dr. Choby, Dr. Van Gumpel, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We'll start with presentation. Um, not everyone presents with quote-unquote esthesioneuroblastoma. So when you see a patient who might have this process, what are some of the typical findings that you see when you first evaluate patients? So thankfully in our clinic, most do present with esthesioneuroblastoma, but it's not certainly across the board. In a number of meta-analyses that have been done, the most common symptom actually that presents is with nasal obstruction. Other things can be diminished sense of smell, so hyposmia or anosmia. Uh, epistaxis is occasionally common. Then other things can occur as well. Um, headache, vision change, et cetera, are, are occasional presenting symptoms. Lastly, I'll mention that once in a blue moon, someone has a neck node and gets an FNA biopsy and it comes back as anesthesio. It's an uncommon way to present, but every once in a while, someone does present with a neck node as opposed to a nasal symptom. And before we fully get into workup, uh, when you evaluate a patient in clinic, what might you find more specifically on endoscopic exam? So typically, all, all these patients will certainly buy an endoscopic exam. These tumors most commonly arise in the olfactory cleft, so they're a high nasal vault tumor. Usually, they're, they're moderately vascular and kind of appear as a fleshy mass in the nose. Certainly, uh, a nasal endoscopy and likely a biopsy, assuming there's been some imaging done, is in order, as well as a thorough neck exam is important as well. And could you describe the classic patient who walks into your clinic with this? There's no specific predisposing factors for this disease process. Uh, there's been reported a number of different age distributions. In some studies, it's been a bimodal age distribution, so a little bit younger than older folks. When you look at a, the SEER meta-analysis that was done a few years back, most patients present in middle to late age. So 40s, 50s, 60s are, are pretty typical presenting uh, timeframes. And moving on from initial presentation, what is anesthesioneuroblastoma? What's the pathophysiology? The cell type that uh, most people believe causes this is called a bipolar cell um, from the nasal epithelium. So it's usually in the upper 1.5 centimeters of the nasal vault. Um, and uh, although it's never been actually proven, like it is in some other diseases, um, it is true, though, that these do stay uh, truly confined to that either paranasal space um, in the upper uh, uh, mid-portion of the nose. Yeah, when I think about this to a certain extent, I think of it as this, we'll probably get to a little bit, the small round blue cell tumor or a neuroendocrine tumor. And uh, as, as I was trained by uh, Carl Snyderman, it sticks to me forever, and I, all credit goes to to Dr. Snyderman, these tumors he describes as good, bad, and ugly. And anesthesioneuroblastoma is sort of in that bad-ish range, whereas its cousins that are also neuroendocrine tumors like SNEC, synasal neuroendocrine carcinoma, or SNUC, synanasal undifferentiated carcinoma, are in that ugly range, if you will. But it is in this sort of neuroepithelium differentiated cell type. Sure. And you started to talk about pathology, and you, you mentioned small round blue cell tumors. Are there any other buzzwords related to this pathology type? There, there are a few uh, that you might see on, on certain examinations, if you will. Uh, Homer Wright rosettes are present on some of these, about a third of patients. There's also one a little bit less common that you can see, uh, something called a Flexner uh, Wintersteiner rosette, and that's a little bit less common than the Homer Wright rosette but occasionally are seen on, uh, on histopathologic ex examination. 
I'll add a little bit about also that historically uh, what you see in papers about esthesial neuroblastomas, they have a very hard time differentiating between what were some of the tumors that Dr. Choby mentioned, like SNUCs, and actually the higher grade, and we'll get to that a little bit later, esthesial neuroblastoma. So it's a, it's a, a pathology and evolution, if you will, and not even uh, institutions can actually agree that some of these are the same types of tumors. So in fact, when we look at the series that have come from Mayo versus the series that have come from University of Virginia, we disagree on what a Himes grade four lesion is for these. So there's, um, we're getting better and better with them. But what is also interesting now is if we look at some specific molecular markers like INI1, which is becoming a hot topic, um, that some esthesioneuroblastomas express this and some don't. So I think eventually we'll probably get to a molecular diagnosis for this, but right now that's not currently where we're at. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's, it's a really evolving field. It's, it's pretty interesting, actually. And what else do you put on the differential diagnosis when you see these patients? We think about a lot of different things. Uh, certainly a, a number of sentinels and malignancies come to mind. Uh, squamous cell carcinoma is a common one. I already mentioned both SNEC and SNUC, so sinasal neuroendocrine or undifferentiated carcinoma. Um, other things are possible as well. Um, rhabdomyosarcoma can occur. Lymphoma is one we see from time to time uh, in that area. And another small round blue cell one is a Ewing sarcoma, which is a pretty unusual one, but one that would be uh, entertained on the differential. Last one that I'll mention is also a sinonasal mucosal melanoma, another small round blue cell tumor that can occur anywhere in the nasal cavity or paranasal sinuses. Uh, lymphoma is probably the most important one to differentiate it from because um, they can look very similar on imaging, contrast enhancing, eroding the skull base, um, and has a completely different treatment algorithm than one would have with, uh, with, with this type of tumor. And when we move on to workup, what is the next step in workup after physical exam in folks who you expect this tumor? If they're in clinic with you and you have imaging, adequate imaging, uh, the most important thing, I think, is biopsy. And Agreed. And what are the imaging studies that you would obtain if you, they didn't come with them? What would you be looking for? So it's, uh, it is kind of an, it's an interesting discussion because it's different, again, across the country. Most of these patients walk in with a CT. They'll see some bony erosion of the skull base. Um, it's nice to have an MRI because these, all the things that we were talking about earlier have different appearances on them, but this is typically a uniformly enhancing mass that is in the upper nasal vault. It can extend into the paranasal sinuses, which then makes it a caddish B lesion. If it erodes through the skull base and, and, and gets into the olfactory tracts, nerves, and also into the, into the brain, those are then considered caddish C lesions or extension into the orbit. Um, but an MRI is important in understanding that because you don't necessarily see that, especially on a sinus CT. Now, patients that have advanced disease also, sometimes we then uh, get on and uh, think about getting things like PET scans, especially for caddish C lesions. Um, but CT is probably the most important, um, and then the nasal endoscopy, and then if they're in clinic with you and it's not something that you would think is a JNA or something like that, uh, obviously you don't want to biopsy that in clinic. Sure. Um, biopsy is the most important next step, I think. Yeah, I agree. Now, I'll just add there, in my opinion, uh, an intraclinic, an in-clinic biopsy is very important, and I'm pretty aggressive with those. If I don't think I'm going to cause a major hemorrhage or a CSF leak based on the imaging and the, and the characteristic appearance, it really helps us to plan our surgical approach, and uh, it makes sure we're not going to take a patient with a lymphoma to the operating room, 
with a planned, you know, six-hour section that ends up being a frozen section lymphoma instead of esthesio, uh, and we're canceling a whole day of surgery. And quickly going back to MRI, I've seen stuff about this dumbbell appearance. Is that an accurate thing? Do we see that on MRI? I don't think that that's that reliable. Uh, what that refers to is tumors that are going through the olfactory file and having something above, um, uh, you know, the skull base and something below. And these things can look a bunch of different ways. And in fact, they can be very difficult to interpret sometimes because they sometimes trap secretions behind them or in the frontal sinuses. And there's a lot of different things to look at. I don't know that a dumbbell appearance is a very reliable characteristic for this. Sure. Now, Dr. Van Gumpel, you started mentioning Caddish grading system. Do you mind quickly reviewing that with us? There are a number of other grading systems, just so that the listeners are aware of. Um, there's a UCLA-based system that's based on TNM grade, grading, but the most common system is the Cadish system, which has been modified. So the Cadish system comes to us from the MGH system based on a, a very limited number of patients uh, initially. And what they did is they broke down the tumors into A, B, and C. They didn't have D at that time. And that system said that Caddish A was confined to the nasal cavity, Caddish B was extension into the paranasal sinuses, and Caddish C was tumor beyond the nasal cavity and paranasal sinuses, which could include either involvement of the cribriform plate, the base of the skull, so erosion on the CT, um, uh, uh, through into the intracranial cavity, or also, uh, which could be separate, not necessarily seen with brain invasion, would be orbital invasion, as as, uh, Caddish C. Now, Moriarty, uh, Mayo uh, added now uh, almost a decade or more later the D classification, which was where patients had clearly presented with lesions in the cervical uh, nodes or elsewhere. So these could be, you know, true metastases. Now we don't consider cervical lymph nodes as being metastases. We consider this regional disease, um, but distant metastases would involve in that too. And we also start to talk about the Hyams grading system here. We probably don't need to go through all of the details since it's a somewhat detailed histologic chart, but can you talk to us a little bit about that and how it uh, helps you with management? So the the Hyams system can be applied to many adenocarcinomas, and it's being applied in this neuroendocrine subset here. And it gives us some things that tell us if tumors can look more aggressive under the microscope. And for a long time, people didn't really know if Heim's grading system was more important than Kadish and vice versa. Um, But there are a number of independent studies, including studies from our uh, institution as well as MD Anderson, that demonstrate that Heim's grading is an independent risk factor for these tumors being aggressive. Most importantly, I don't think it's worth getting caught up into whether or not a tumor is a Heim's grade one, two, or three, or four, and memorizing the criteria that they have. But knowing that a Himes grade 1 or 2 is, is kind of a low-grade, more low-grade lesion, and a Himes 3 and 4 is more of a high-grade lesion, I think is very important. And those can be managed differently, um, depending on the institution. And one more question about workup. We mentioned metastatic disease. If you biopsy someone positive in clinic, do you always get a PET-CT to work up for metastatic disease? So probably not the best use of resources. Some people do recommend that now. Um, but smaller lesions, uh, low Himes grade lesions, we wouldn't recommend that. Now, I would tell you that you have to push your pathologist even here, but I think at most places to give you that Himes grade lesion. 
or they give you the Himes grade scoring on your on your particular tumor. But um, PET scanning we re, we reserve for high Himes grade lesions, um, caddish C and D lesions, obviously D lesions. I'll also mention that you know depending on what study you look at, only five percent of patients will have a neck node at diagnosis. So as Dr. Pinkhamble mentions, you know, as far as resource utilization, unless they're a high-grade or advanced disease, it may not always make the most sense to get a PET CT. Now, I will say that most patients, by the time they come, may have had a PET or they've had at least a neck CT scan done. But I would echo those sentiments as well. So we've talked about workup. We've talked about uh, pathophysiology. Um, so say you confirm the diagnosis. And the reason I appreciate both of you being in the room here is so that we can talk about treatment, too. Um, what is your typical approach to managing these tumors? I think that uh, we'll probably discuss this one together because this is a pretty nuanced discussion we have amongst ourselves uh, pretty frequently. For localized tumors, uh, again, presuming there's no metastatic disease, we'll, we'll say in these cases, for localized tumors, uh, we treat the majority of these now with, with an endoscopic and a nasal resection. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the nuances of olfactory bulb resection or not or bilateral or unilateral. Um, now, there are some tumors that have a lot of intracranial extension or extension over the orbit, in which case other um, adjunctive open approaches are also needed. But I would say in our hands, the majority nowadays, we, we can treat with an endoscopic and a nasal approach. And although we won't talk about the actual surgical steps, can you paint a picture for our listeners of what surgery looks like? Can, can we, uh, let's back up just yeah. a little bit, though. Um, just to point out again, and uh, you know, we've written a lot about how it's different across the country and across the world on this one. We even within so surgical approach, not everybody goes to surgery right away on these. In fact, um, you know, UVA and I believe MD Anderson and some other centers do upfront neoadjuvant therapy on all tumors. So that's an it's an important discussion even here. So even in, in our hands, even though we favor going to surgery first. Um, when we look at a series of over 100 tumors here, we considered we only go to surgery if we think the tumor can get a margin-negative resection. If we cannot achieve a margin-negative resection, um, and that there's a little bit of, again, going back to the nuances about orbital, we do orbital preservation regardless of margin negativity. Um, we would then start with neoadjuvant therapy here, and a lot of people would just start with neoadjuvant therapy. They would go through typically, you know, several cycles, and then they would uh, re-image, uh, and at that point in time, go to surgery. Now here, like I said, we if we can get a margin-negative resection, that's what trumps everything, uh, regardless of approach, whether we go through the nose, whether we do an open approach. And in fact, my partner um, prefers to do all these through a craniofacial resection. When I say when I, when I say craniofacial resection is an open craniotomy, uh, there's a lot of different flavors of how you do that, but repair with a pericranial graft with endoscope assistance. Um, and we do, Dr. Choby and myself do have a preference if we believe we can get negative margins to do that all through the nose um, and do a multi-layered reconstruction. But I want to emphasize that even though that's our preference, if we cannot achieve negative margins, we will convert to a craniofacial resection. Sure. And we will sometimes break towards doing a craniofacial resection um, if we are think we're on the edge just because it's a more efficient way to get a margin negative resection. And that is the most important thing about the, our, the surgery. Yeah, and also just, just for our listeners who may largely be otolaryngology trained, realize that the endoscope is simply a tool to do a job. And at the end of the day, doing the job properly is what's most important. 
So a margin negative status is the is the is the king in this in this tumor surgery. So whatever it takes to get that is, is what's most important for the patient. So say this is a resection that's able to be done endoscopically through the nose. Um, what does your resection look like, and can you talk a little bit about the reconstruction? The first thing I'll mention is that I think every operation is tailored to, towards the individual tumor. So again, presuming we're doing an endoscopic endonasal resection, let's say it's a fairly typical tumor that we see. We'll typically get uh, everything open up from orbit to orbit, frequently with a draft three uh, frontal sinusotomy as well, and uh, open up uh, both sphenoids widely such that the entire skull base is, is open to us and we can see orbit to orbit. We'll do our bony osteotomies, usually with a drill, again, tailored for that individual tumor. Uh, and again, depending on how much intracranial involvement and orbital uh, bulb and tract involvement will matter a bit about what dural and ex extended margins that we take. But we'll clear that uh, with frozen section intraoperative uh, uh, markers, and we oftentimes will send uh, many, many, many frozen sections. Pathologists probably hate us a little bit, but it's worth it. And you should. And you should. I mean, you should, everywhere you are, you should be biopsying in quadrants. And in fact, to the skull base, probably breaking that up into like a eight different segments to make sure that you have uh, margin negativity because it is that important. And, and then again, assuming we're doing an, an endoscopic craniofacial resection or an anterior craniobase resection, we would tend to lean towards a, a multi-layer reconstruction. We usually like a large fasciolotograft as an inlay, sometimes even duragen above that, a synthetic uh, dural uh, inset. And then at the outset, we'll raise a very large extended nasal septal flap to begin the case. We'll routinely check the uh, septal margins on that to ensure we're clear of tumor as we make those cuts with our bovi. That's tucked in the nasopharynx for the surgery, and then once we're done and the fasciolata has been in place, then rotate up and cover the entire skull base from frontal sinus orbit to orbit to planum. And I'd say most commonly we don't have a nasal septal flap to work with for these cases, and we will do a then a two-layer repair with, with separate layers of fasciolata, one inlaid and then one laid against the periorbita. That's uh, been uh, most of the bone, all the bones been removed from that. And um, there is a price to be paid for that kind of reconstruction. There's a lot of nasal debridement that needs to be done long-term when you don't have nice vascular tissue. Um, and in some circumstances, those are the patients that people really believe, you know, should we add a you know, pericranial graft on? And, and people are converting more commonly to doing craniofacial resections for those. And if patients didn't have radiation therapy before surgery, is it routine to have it done postoperatively? So the board answer is yes. Um, most of the radiation literature supports that. Um, there are centers such as ours that um, with a margin negative resection, and uh, low Himes grade uh, pathology, we will reserve or give the patient option for no radiation. Now, we just published on this this year where in those patients that chose not to have radiation, there's a higher chance of recurrence uh, compared to what is more aggressive pathology. Um, but the salvageability is very good for those patients. And what we looked at mostly is, you know, what is the real cost of that radiation? And honestly, we're, we're talking about radiating the frontal lobes and uh, a very demucosalized nasal vault. And the, the, um, the, the overall morbidity is probably very low. Um, and this gets back to what the patient's preference is. But most people are electing for radiation nowadays. And what about chemotherapy? So chemotherapy is, is uh, um, reserved for metastatic disease uh, currently. There is, no neo, there is no adjuvant therapy for postoperative radiation. It's only neoadjuvant for preoperative. 
Um, there's nothing to suggest anything out there that we're going to sensitize this with any particular agent. Um, what is also pertinent, I think, to the discussion is um, some people try, so there was a period of time when people were trying to boost margins that were positive with Gamma Knife, and uh, that's been shown to not really um, have the same outcome as patients with margin-negative resections. Uh, whether or not proton beam plays a role in here is largely unknown because uh, that's new therapy. So realistically, that decision of proton beam versus IMRT classic with photons should be reserved to the radiation oncologist and the the um, the likelihood of long-term secondary um, diagnoses like malignant brain tumors or meningiomas from that radiation. And most commonly, patients under the age of 50, probably nowadays, if they're if they're lucky enough to be at a proton beam center, will probably opt for that because of that reduction. But there should be no difference in outcomes in those two in, in terms of the immediate therapy. This tumor has a long potential for people to live for a very long time, so it's important to consider the secondary toxicity of the radiation. I, I agree 100%. The other thing I'll mention with your question about chemotherapy is that uh, Again, reserved for metastatic disease, but we published a series earlier this year where, in some folks again who are not were not able to achieve a margin negative status at the outset of planning their procedure, may get neoadjuvant chemotherapy or combined with radiation therapy in order to get them to a surgical resectable lesion. So that is a potential role for chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting, in order to shrink the tumor to give us a margin negative resection. And we talked, we discussed that there's maybe 5% of folks who have a neck mass. What is the role for treating neck disease? This is a little bit controversial, but most literature supports uh, not performing an elective neck dissection if there's no clinical disease present, because again, about 95% of patients won't have a node at that time. Now, as Dr. Finkelman mentioned, this is a disease with a certain amount of longevity to it. So there is a fairly high rate of delayed neck metastases. There's a multi-center study a few years back uh, looking at about, you know, roughly 10 years after their initial surgery, and roughly 15% of people would end up getting a delayed neck node at some point along the way. Here, we would typically salvage them with a neck dissection, although radiation would be an option as well. There are some centers that do elect to perform elective neck radiation in any patient undergoing treatment for uh, neuroblastoma. Their thought is that it may reduce the risk of uh, a neck node popping up later on, but I would say that's still pretty controversial right now. It's it's fairly controversial, but you know it'll be good to see that data. I, I want to mention though that having a single positive neck node is the number one indicator for mortality from this disease. So any single time they have that, it's it's a, it's a different actor. And can you speak a little bit more to how you counsel your patients regarding? Uh, surgical complications or, you know, what to expect after surgery, but also prognosis? So once we have all the data, I think it's important for us to have that discussion. We don't usually make that off the frozen section uh, intraclinic because the Himes grade will change sometimes with a larger tumor sample. Um, But it's going to be broken into, you know, obviously their caddish stage, their Himes grade, and also uh, if we achieve margin negative resection. But these patients, you know, we're expecting a lot of these patients to live a long time. The median survival is about eight and a half years for these patients. Um, and uh, we have that discussion. It's it's hard to tell any individual patient with the lack of, of a large series on this what their outcome will be. And we tell them that we're going to settle in for the long haul. That's how I manage this. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I will also... 
echo the same sentiments, but I'll add that I think just to reemphasize the Himes grade does matter. So in a, in a pretty large SEER database study, folks with a Himes grade one or two had about a two-thirds 10-year survival, whereas a Himes grade three or four had only about a 30, 35% 10-year survival. So that does make a difference. It's something we'll counsel our patients on as well as far as the, the Himes grade, the aggressiveness of it. And after surgical resection, how do you follow up with these patients? So we, in the first year, get a scan at three months, six months, six months, and then yearly for a period of time. But the real important thing is that the nasal endoscopy is a very important tool, and we can't you know, sit back and, and rely on just the um, uh, MRI to guide us. I mean, it's more common, at least if you look in the literature, and this may be biased a little bit by, um, by time, but um, the C recurrences with um, endoscopic examination. A clinical neck exam is still very important in these patients, although one of the issues, of course, is that the most common lymph node involvement is the retropharyngeal lymph nodes, which isn't typically felt, obviously, with a clinical neck exam. Um, we don't routinely follow them with PET unless they have high-grade disease at the outset and they have margin-positive disease. I'll also mention as far as in the, in the immediate postoperative period, we usually will do a first debridement, uh, you know, one to two weeks after surgery. If we're doing a true cranial-based resection, there's not much in the nose to support nasal packing. So we, in those cases, which is unusual usual for us, we usually will use things like uh, mirror cell sponges need to come out. And I'll, I'll debrief them a few more times over that first month or two to make sure they're healing well, make sure there's no CSF leak, et cetera. And that'll set, up, set us up well without scarring, then monitor them long-term uh, with nasal endoscopy. Awesome. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, I do want to provide a brief summary, but before I do, anything else worth mentioning that we didn't talk about? I'll, I'll just mention the, the importance in treating this, these tumors with uh, an experienced multidisciplinary team. So it's you know otolaryngology, it's neurosurgery, it's radiation oncology, medical oncology, uh, pathology. Everyone's really, really important with this pretty rare disease process. So I think it's, uh, it's a key thing to have a, a good team you can trust and work with. Great. Well, thank you so much. I will um, do a quick summary here. Um, Esthesioneuroblastoma typically presents uh, with more ENT symptoms like nasal congestion, nasal obstruction, maybe sinusitis-like symptoms, but can also have uh, symptoms like headache, possible visual impairment, and about 5% of folks present with a neck mass. Uh, when you evaluate these patients, you might see a fleshy mass uh, on nasal endoscopy towards the cranial vault. Uh, pathophysiology includes... Uh, the fact that it's a neuroblastoma from these olfactory cells. And one of the buzzwords that you might hear um, on pathology are the Homer Wright rosettes. And this uh, is classified as one of, the, one of those small round blue cell tumors. Workup includes CT to identify uh, skull base erosion. An MRI might classically be described as having a dumbbell appearance, but that's not always reliable. Biopsy should be considered in clinic. Uh, and these tumors have uh, different grade, grading systems. One is the Kadish, uh, which describes where the tumor is, and then there's the Hyams grading system, which describes the uh, histopathology, and metastatic disease should be considered. Treatment can involve neoadjuvant radiation therapy before surgery, uh, but surgical resection plays a large part in this uh, treatment paradigm. Uh, and follow-up uh, with these patients is essential, both in clinic and with imaging. Um, and as uh, uh, Dr. Choby said, uh, depending on Hyams grade, uh, prognosis can be uh, 
more promising than uh, the higher HIEMS grade. Anything else worth adding? No, thanks for the time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's now time to bring this episode to a close, but before we do, I'll run through some questions. As always, I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds before answering it to give you time to pause or consider the answer, and then I'll give the answer. So the first question is, what are the most common presenting symptoms of a cesioneuroblastoma, and what percentage present with a neck mass? The most common presenting symptoms of this tumor are things like congestion, nasal obstruction, and possibly epistaxis or other sinusitis-like symptoms. Um, but we can also see headache, rhinorrhea, hyposmia, uh, and neck masses are seen at about 5%. Next question, describe the Kadish grading system. The Kadish grading system is split into four parts, A, B, C, and D. Type A is confined to the nasal cavity. Type B is extension into the paranasal sinus. Type C is tumor beyond the nasal cavity and paranasal sinuses, including involvement of the cribriform plate, base of skull, intracranial cavity, and orbit. And type D is METS to cervical lymph nodes or other distant sites. For the next question, what is another classification system on histology that can have an impact on prognosis? This is the Hyams grading system, which is a histologic classification to describe the grade of the tumor. And finally, uh, what is the standard treatment for this tumor and how do we follow up with it? These tumors almost always require radiation and surgery. Sometimes radiation is better before surgery and sometimes it's used afterwards. And in terms of follow-up, Patients should have close follow-up, especially with nasal endoscopy, to be evaluating for any recurrence, and follow-up MRI also plays a large role in this. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.